Hello, and Happy New Year from the Breachside Broadcast, home of the finest fox casting either side of the breach. With a new year comes new beginnings, and in this episode, we begin a new chapter in our ongoing saga. The new year is a time of transformation. Old friends can turn on one another. Old enemies can discover their interests are aligned. Welcome to Shifting Loyalties. Sit back, relax, and enjoy our story. Right after this word from our sponsor. This episode of the Breachside Broadcast is brought to you by Josephine's Artisanal Bricks. We offer a collection of rare and hard to find bricks from the world's most exclusive brick factories and kilns. Our bricks are hand fired in small batches and dried under the watchful eyes of 7th generation brick makers. We even have a vintage batch of bricks from the old Ash Lane Brickworks right here in Malifaux. Ideal for building a haunted house or sealing up that room that you don't want anyone entering or leaving ever again. Get them before they're gone. by Graham Stevenson. Dark alleys and skullduggery go together like death and taxes, and this particular alley was no exception. It was typical of the southern quarantine zone, in that its walls were high and menacing, the bricks were black with soot and mould, and the dirt floor was buried under layers of rotting matter. There was also a strong chemical funk hanging in the air that seemed to be seeping from the crumbling building beyond the alley mouth, where no lights burned in the broken windows, but there was an undeniable sense of occupation and a lurking presence within. There were presences in the alley, too. Three of them, huddled together and clearly involved in some nefarious purpose. The first was tall and gaunt, with a shock of wild red hair and a filthy surgeon's smock. The mad light in his eyes was exacerbated by the unhinged breadth of his smile. He looked exactly like the sort of person one should never consider buying anything from, and yet that appeared to be precisely what was going on. The second figure was short and extremely broad, and wheeling a very large crate into the alley with the assistance of a trolley. The crate creaked and rocked periodically, although it was unclear whether this was due to the rutted surface under the trolley or movement from within. The third figure stood a head taller than the mad surgeon, and was swaddled in a heavy hooded cape, 
in accordance with the clothing guidelines when attending underhand deals in which anonymity is considered expedient. There we are, said Dr. McMorning, spreading one gore-stained glove to indicate the arriving crate. Just as you ordered. And the additional specifications, asked the hooded figure. Its voice was disguised. McMorning couldn't even tell if it belonged to a man or a woman. The doctor nodded, his grin magnified. All in place. I'm certain you will be satisfied. Very well, nodded the figure. It drew a velvet bag from the folds of its cloak and handed it to McMorning. Its contents clinked like crystal as it settled. I have a carriage waiting in the next street. Have your man wheel it out for me. You heard the order, Sebastian, McMorning echoed. Get to it. Sebastian looked at him. And be quick about it, McMorning added over his shoulder, grinning reassuringly at the robed figure. Sebastian looked at him. Are you still here? McMorning craned his head around to glare. You were given an order in case you weren't paying attention. Sebastian looked at him. Don't take that tone with me, McMorning snapped, putting his hands on his hips. It wasn't my fault, you know. Sebastian looked at him. Well, how was I to know it would cause an explosion? The doctor continued, getting exasperated. I can't be responsible for everything that goes into a laboratory, you know. Sebastian looked at him. McMorning turned back to the shrouded figure and made an apologetic face. Sorry about this. He's been particularly obtuse ever since the incident. The incident. McMorning rolled his eyes. Well, he's been a good assistant, and I thought I'd make him a companion for his birthday. The doctor held up his hands. I know, I know. I'm a sentimental old fool, but I thought he might like it. Nothing too complex, you understand. Just a pair of legs I got from an ex-dancer, and a few other bits and bobs I had lying around. Vacuous, to be certain, but easy on the eye. Sebastian looked at him. Yes, well, it was an honest mistake, McMorning rounded on his silent companion again, apparently forgetting the client was still standing there. This new microwave technology is very tricky. Not something you'd understand. Sebastian looked at him. Well, you should look where you're going. When you're dancing, don't swing her into the beam next time. Sebastian looked at him. Fine, fine. The doctor threw up his hands, evidently at the end of his tether. I'll make you another one, okay? Will that make you happy? Sebastian sniffed and marched off with the crate. Honestly, the doctor grumbled, running a glove through his crazy hair. You just can't get the staff these days. Outside the city, to the southeast, where the weirdwood trees bent and sagged as they met the sweating vegetation of the bayou, was a clearing. In that clearing stood a fat man in travel-worn leathers. One side of his face was shiny and crimson from old burns, and his hands were covered in scar tissue. Behind him stood a sturdy, wide-wheeled wagon and a small crate that rattled and jangled vigorously. 
The crate had been chained down to the wagon's flatbed and jingled constantly as something inside fought viciously for freedom. A tall hooded figure stood sweltering in the afternoon heat, its cloth damp and muddied by the terrain. There you go, the scarred man said. Can't think of what you want it for. Nasty critter. Why is not your concern, said the figure, and handed over a velvet bag of clinking object. The man took the bat and hefted it. The weight was clearly to his satisfaction. Nice doing business with you, he said. Might you be looking for anything else in this line? I got me a pair of horned. This will be sufficient, thank you. The figure cut him off. I will have the wagon returned to you when the cargo has been offloaded. The man nodded and watched the figure climb aboard and snap the reins. The mule brayed and jerked forward, dragging the rattling crate and its contents into the trees and out of sight. He opened the bag and looked inside, his grin widening. A very nice little earner. In truth, he hadn't needed to go out and catch it in the wild. He'd had one already locked up for just such an eventuality. But it didn't hurt to make the client think they were getting their money's worth. Well, he mused, as he tucked his payment into his waistcoat, he wasn't sure why that creature in particular was required, but whoever opened that crate was going to have a lousy afternoon. The Star Theatre was busy, but then it always was. Quiet corner booths were very difficult to obtain at any time of the evening, unless you happened to be a somebody, or knew them well enough to garner their favour. The man settled in the booth watching the dancing girls was a somebody. The hooded figure beside him, however, was an enigma. The package is ready, the figure asked in its curiously disguised voice, as I specified. It is, Victor Ramos nodded, but I should tell you that I am not in the habit of dealing with unknown parties. I wish to remain anonymous for the moment, the figure said, but rest assured, I am on your side. I imagine that is obvious now that I have advised you of the intended purpose for the package. Which I think is still a mistake, Ramos warned. I fear you have underestimated your adversary. She is not to be trifled with under any circumstances. That is a risk I am willing to accept. Besides, you will not be implicated. Your involvement in this will never be uncovered. Ramos was silent, but his expression conveyed his unease well enough. I trust that my donation to your cause was sufficient. Very generous. But the money is not in question, Ramos said. Would you at least reconsider my offer of assistance? Between us, we stand a far better chance of ridding ourselves of this particular thorn for good and all. Thank you for the offer, but this is something I must do my own way. There was a coldness stealing into the figure's voice. Something personal, you might say. The figure stood, looming over the Union leader. You will be reading about my triumph soon enough. Good evening. Ramos watched the figure move away through the crowd. He was certain he'd be reading something in the periodicals, but he doubted very much it would be the headline his mysterious associate had envisioned.
Sonia Crid fingered the shot glass for a while, then downed the bourbon, flicking her head back in a practiced manner that got the alcohol through the slit in her mask and into her mouth. She knew she probably should have stopped by now, but her headache was only starting to dissipate, and the bottle was still half full. The bar was quiet, and had become considerably more so since she had arrived, which suited her fine. She needed some peace to think. The parchment was spread flat out on the table in front of her, and she read it for the hundredth time. My dearest friend, only you can help me now. I know I should have told you sooner, but I didn't know who I could trust, and now I fear it may be too late. They are coming for me. I don't have much time. Meet me tonight in the old brickworks off Ash Lane in the quarantine zone. Come alone. I'll tell you everything. The note was unsigned, and the hand was unfamiliar. Sonia poured herself another shot while she stared at it. Nothing new had occurred to her in the half hour she'd been sitting here drinking, and she wasn't sure what inspiration she expected a bottle of cheap bourbon to bestow upon her anyway. It was a trap. It was obviously a trap. But she couldn't for the life of her figure out who was trying to spring it. The street urgent that delivered it had actually been trying to slip it into her overcoat pocket when she caught him. All he'd been able to tell her was a big fella in a cloak had promised him a coin if he sneaked this note into her pocket. He hadn't seen his face. And when Sonia went to where the urchin was meant to go and claim his reward, she found the alley deserted. She rotated the shot glass slowly in her hand, frowning down at the note. Who would want to set a trap for her? Take your pick, she mused. Any number of arcanist scum had it in for her, and it seemed that one of them had hatched a plot to try and knock her off. It didn't feel like any of the big players. Ramos was much too subtle for such a clumsy hook, and Marcus was too direct. A lieutenant, then. A low-ranker looking to make a name for themselves by chalking up the guild's highest-profile arcanist hunter. Whatever. She realized she really didn't care. Sonia downed the bourbon and stood up, crumpling the note and stuffing it into her duster. She was tired of speculation. Tired of being a bullseye for every magic freak that felt the guild was to blame for their lack of judgment. She'd go to the brickworks, and she'd let them spring their trap. And then, she'd burn them. Ash Lane, she reflected. They couldn't have picked a better spot. Lady Justice sat quite still at her desk, hands on the paper. She slid her index fingers across the lines, reading the message once again. My dearest friend, only you can help me now. I know I should have told you sooner, but I didn't know who I could trust, and now I fear it may be too late. They are coming for me. I don't have much time. Meet me tonight in the old brickworks off Ash Lane in the quarantine zone. Come alone. I'll tell you everything. The paper was thick and of good quality, which suggested wealth. The writing was heavy, scored deep into the page, an indication of anger and physical strength, but the handwriting was elaborate and meticulous, like a woman's. She lifted the page and sniffed it again. Definitely rose hips. The scent was vaguely familiar but she couldn't place from where. 
The letter had been on her desk when she returned to her office. There had been a faint scent of sweat in the chamber, and crumbs of river mud on the boards when she crouched to sweep a hand about her. The stink of fish and human effluent was unmistakable. But no corruption. No trace of the pungent odour of death, or the malignant hand of a resurrectionist. More likely someone commissioned a street waif to sneak in here and deposit the letter. One who spent a lot of time down by the river catching fish off the boats. The author wanted to keep their identity a secret. Lady Justice had no doubt that it was a trap. She had no close friends, childhood or otherwise, and no associate of hers would send a cryptic note begging for a mysterious rendezvous in the quarantine zone, irrespective of what predicament they were in. The only purpose of this message was to get her to be there at the appointed time to allow the engineer of this affair to present their true purpose. And she did not intend to disappoint them. She got to her feet and strapped her greatsword across her back, a gesture as unconscious and automatic as breathing now. Without the heavy steel she felt incomplete, unable to execute her duty as an appointed lawgiver. As she walked to the door of her office, the steel points of her heels rang against the floor, filling the room with high-pitched echoes that fed back dimensions, shapes, and distances. This was a deliberate design, and the truth behind the myth of her legendary irritability. While underlings scurried to complete their tasks, for fear of being accosted by the terrifying apparition that was tapping her foot with impatience, she was in fact reaffirming the size of the room, the doorways, the furniture. She did it near constantly, without really thinking about it. Those echoes were her eyes in many respects, and so much the better if it put everyone else on edge. The quicker they jumped at her instruction, the quicker she got the job done. She strode through the halls, her heels ringing like steel bells on the marble floor, while serfs and catalogists swerved out of her way. She was heading for the quarantine zone, and woe betide whoever was waiting for her. Perdita Ortega was making good time. The horse was strong. A big grey Andalusian mare called Polo from her father's stable, and it ate up the miles to Malifaux with ease. She seemed to sense her rider's excitement, which spurred her on, leaping scrub and low cacti and galloping across the hard dust plains. Perdita squinted up at the afternoon sun as she rode. Another four hours of sunlight. She would reach the city just after dark, which was perfect. The note had said to come at night. She played it in her mind again. My dearest friend, only you can help me now. I know I should have told you sooner, but I didn't know who I could trust, and now I fear it may be too late. They are coming for me. I don't have much time. Meet me tonight in the old brickworks off Ash Lane in the quarantine zone. Come alone. I'll tell you everything. It had made no sense to her the first time she'd read it. Who could possibly be needing her help? And why would they call her all the way to the city? All her friends lived near the Ortega Ranch, or in Santa Felipe, less than an hour's ride. 
The note was false. It was too vague, hinting at information but confirming nothing, leaving gaps for her to fill with her own conclusions. Like those phony fortune-tellers that trolled through the farming towns looking for a gullible housewife to part from her silver. A trap, then. Perdita's heart had quickened with excitement. A fishhook dangled in full view, glinting with the promise of danger and revelation. She had not been able to resist. Santiago had insisted on coming with her, to watch her back, but she refused his help. It would be a pleasant outing to visit the city without her brothers bickering and arguing amongst themselves, and she was curious to find out who'd written such a cryptic note. She charged towards Malifaux, filled with the promise of a mystery rendezvous and the knowledge that tonight would be nothing less than an adventure. Sonia had been watching the brickworks for a half hour, but there was no sign of life. She'd been out this way before some months ago to unearth an arcanist's cell, but had never been inside this building in particular. It had a storage yard at the far end, now a vast mound of collapsed brick stacks shot through with a labyrinth of narrow alleys and dead ends. The brickworks itself was an oblong building that sported four vast chimneys, three of which were still standing. The fourth, and closest, had been sheared in half by some unknown force countless years ago, and had crushed part of the building's front in its collapse, spreading itself in the building's entrance across the street. Further back were glimpses of titanic ovens, and beyond that was a wooden annex that held hoppers of river clay, long since dried into rock-hard sediment. It was obvious that this place had once been a site of great industry, no doubt home to several thousand workers, producing the components necessary to build the city around it. Now it was just another mouldering relic, one more black husk that told the sad tale of a civilization long since gone back to the dust. When she was certain that she wasn't being watched, Sonia moved out to the street and walked cautiously towards the collapsed entrance of the brickworks. Although the entrance foyer had been smeared over a hundred yards by the toppling chimney, the wreckage had long since settled, and it was an easy enough task to clamber up the shallow hillside of broken stone and slip through the waist-height opening and into the building proper. It was a starry night, but inside the building, Sonia immediately grew more cautious. It was black in here, with barely enough illumination to see twenty feet in front of her. She waited for her vision to adjust but it soon became evident this building was in complete darkness. Once she had ventured past the entrance and the gaping hole in its roof, she wouldn't be able to see her hand in front of her face. Even knowing an ambush was up ahead didn't compensate for being blinded, and so she raised her hand and called a small cone of flame into being, barely a matchhead's worth, shivering in the palm of her hand, just enough to throw a dim orange glow about her and help her discern her surroundings. She sneaked slowly forward, adjusting her sword to make sure it was loose in its scabbard, found a black doorway, and went through it. She could feel Cherufe somewhere inside, pacing like an animal. It too seemed to sense that a confrontation was approaching, and was growing agitated. 
no doubt hoping it could twist circumstances in its favor, perhaps finally escaping its hated prison. Not tonight, she whispered, as she crept along a dark corridor. The tyrant roiled and snarled inside her. Sonia moved deeper into the building, her little nimbus of orange light growing weaker as she moved further and further down the corridor until she turned a corner and it vanished entirely, leaving only inky black. Night had fully fallen. She could sense it from the cooling air, from the night sounds beginning their chorus around her. The trap was laid. All that was required was the mouse. Lady Justice stepped slowly and carefully through the maze of bricks. Her heels clicked piercingly on the stone slabs underfoot, and her acute ears picked up the stacks all around her. Where an uneducated ambusher might think they had the edge over a blind person in a maze, she knew better. She could sense the bricks around her even in the dark, so she could see further than they could, and the proximity of the maze brought them into her melee circle, which was simultaneously better for her and far, far worse for them. A cunning opponent would have drawn her into an open space, where she would be more vulnerable, try to pick her off at range. But in here, the ball was solidly in her court, which was the reason she'd chosen to enter the brickworks through the storage yard. Every so often she would freeze, letting the evening air carry the scents of old brick lichen and damp to her, listening to the softest sigh of the wind sliding through the brick stacks, the distant squeal of some nocturnal animal falling prey to a predator, to the slow grating of the building settling infinitesimally on its foundations. There was a presence here. It was elusive, but every so often she caught it. The faintest hint of rotting meat. A single scent molecule of corruption that did not belong in this dusty tomb of industry. The resurrectionists were here. She should not have been surprised. Who else would use such a blunt device to try and ambush her? The Resurrectionists were not known for their subtlety. However, this didn't feel like a Resurrectionist ploy for all that. It was a curious situation. She reached back and drew her greatsword, slowly and cautiously, so that there was not so much as a scrape of steel against leather. The stink of death was still very faint, so they were not close, but they were here. She would find them, and then she would punish them. She moved on. Perdita took a deep breath and let it out slowly. It was a nice night, and it had been a nice ride. Even so... She hoped that she hadn't wasted the trip. Come out, come out, wherever you are, she shouted. I rode a long way. This had better be a fun fight, Pendejo. Her fingers itched to draw her pistol from its waiting holster, 
but she left it. Someone had gone to some trouble to get her here. No need to get it over with too quickly. She grinned. There was something up ahead. Sonya raised the profile of her guiding flame just a fraction, enough to spread the ring of illumination another ten feet or so. She had followed the corridor into a massive interior hall, partly filled with the first of the four ovens that would have been used to bake the clay bricks. It was cold and dead now, but the oven was over thirty feet square and serviced by a titanic pair of iron double doors at one end. Stacks of unfired bricks still littered the floor space around it, grey and dried out, with a fuzzy top layer of dust and silt. The light in here was fractionally better, due to most of the skylights being smashed and admitting weak beams of silver light to the dusty interior. Among the pallets of shaped clay at the entrance to the oven was a wooden crate. It stood up on its end and looked to be three or four feet square. She could tell from the relative cleanliness of the wood that it had not been here long, coupled with the scrapes and marks in the dust of someone trying to drag it into place, probably very recently. A pile of chains lay nearby, along with an opened padlock, which made her nervous. She looked up at the rusted gantries overhead that serviced the chimney stack and the skylights. Nothing. She checked again, but there was no sign of anything. Just black oblong shadows, stacks of old brick and the odd cobweb. Whoever this was, they had patience. Well, she reasoned, you've come this far. She took a step toward the crate, and the top flew off with a bang, causing her to leap back and drop into a fighting crouch. The crate lid spun through the air, and she saw something flashing before it fell out of sight and landed with a sound like shattering glass. A black silhouette began to rise out of the crate, little more than a formless shadow that gradually began to coalesce into a humanoid figure. She squinted harder and saw that the figure was stepping out of the crate, wearing a heavy duster and boots just like hers. A long red mane of hair flashed as it caught the light from Sonya's open palm, and as the figure stepped into the circle of illumination, she saw that it wore the same baleful mask as she. Sonya was staring at herself. The storage yard had proven to be empty. Nothing had been through it recently, at least nothing that had left a trail that Lady Justice could detect. A large double door led into a sizable chamber, judging by the reverberations of her echoing steps. This was where she was at a disadvantage, and she slowed considerably, moving around the outer wall rather than into the centre of the room. She detected large masses to her left and right that sounded as though they were made from the same bricks as the outer wall, and when she was close enough, she drew a hand across the surface to confirm it. 
These must have been the ovens that cooked the bricks back when this place was still functioning. They would be put to use again now, as cover for Lady Justice, as she worked her way around the room. She could also sense metal framework overhead, most likely service gantries from their faint hollow echoes, and that would be a prime place to put a sniper. The smell of corruption was stronger here, still elusive, but she was definitely getting closer. There was another smell too, a steady permeation as there were no air currents inside the building. Sweat. Human sweat. She had stopped to take another sounding, when a piercing smash echoed from somewhere to her left, perhaps a hundred feet. It sounded like someone had dropped a pane of glass on the stone floor. She twisted in that direction, hunched, head cocked to pick up any sense of movement, and that was when the gantry overhead finally creaked. She heard a strange hiss crack and dived, rolling on her shoulder. Something streaked down from the gantry, sounding like a boiling kettle, and struck the stone paving where she'd been a second before. The impact smashed the stone, and she felt the flesh of her arms being stung by flying gravel as she came up to a crouch, her greatsword held horizontally across her body. The gantry creaked again. Someone was up there, and another hiss crack made her jerk back the other way, feeling something like lightning passing her head, close enough to make her hair prickle with static electricity. The stone floor behind her exploded, and her back was hammered with shrapnel. It appeared she'd found her ambush. The shadows were everywhere, Perdita realized, raising her paraffin lantern. She was confident that her reflexes were faster than anything else out here, but if she was ambushed from all sides at once, there was a slim chance she might not be able to gun them all down before she herself was dragged to the ground. With this in mind, she had found a wall and kept her back to it, sliding along and squinting into the gloom, swinging her lantern into archways and holes with her other hand resting on her pistol. The first thing to pop up with horns or blue skin was going to get a forty-five caliber hole in its face. Minutes went by while her boots got more and more scuffed, and her frustration grew. Perdita had been born for battle. She was at her most alive when steel flashed and guns thundered. Balanced on the knife edge of chance, while those around did their best to kill and eat you. She was not a creeper or a sneaker and had neither the patience nor sufficient control of her temper to persevere with this cloak-and-dagger nonsense for long. It had to be some never-born scheme. Where are you, Diablo? she muttered, coming to the end of a narrow passage and watching her lantern light spreading out into a wide pool. She had arrived at one end of a huge chamber, in which several hulking square shapes squatted like massive gargoyles. Her lamp illuminated one corner of the closest shape. It looked like a huge brick cube, but its purpose was lost on her. Just then there was a sound of smashing glass from somewhere up ahead. Found your monstro. Grinning, she drew her peacebringer and advanced quickly into the huge chamber. 
She had only gone half a dozen strides before a sharp crack and a blue flash lit up the hall to her left. A second blast followed almost immediately after. Loke? Preternatural instinct made her duck, and something heavy whooshed over her head, bringing with it a strong carrion stink. Perdita twisted away like a cat and spun around, revolver raised. Her lantern illuminated a huge shape, close to seven feet tall and broad at the shoulder. It might have been a man once, but the crude stitching and unhealthy pallor informed her that this abomination was no longer living. It was garbed in a ragged brown shift, from which long muscular arms projected, and atop its broad misshapen skull was a lank, black-haired wig. Whatever this absurd thing was, it certainly wasn't Neverborn. Yo no tengo tiempo para esto, she grumbled, and shot it right between the eyes. The bullet wanged off its skull, jerking its head back and knocking the wig askew. Perdita saw a gleam of metal through the ripped flesh. Huh, she said. It began to advance. hope you enjoyed this episode of Breachside Broadcast. Join us next time for the conclusion of Roll Reversals and more.